You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Let's turn to God's Word, and we're going to turn to Acts chapter 4. I'll read that in a moment, but I want to explain what we're going to do. It's on page 1095. First again, to welcome any who are visiting. Um, Normally, what we do here is preach through a book of the Bible, but occasionally, I like to look at a particular question, and (coughs) in a sense, tied in with what Solas does, is look at some of the big questions that people have. Now, I want to look at this particular question we're going to look at, obviously, from a biblical perspective, and I've entitled it, The Exclusivity and Inclusivity of Christ. Now, let me explain just the background to where we're at, and I'm sure most of you will recognize this. We live in what's called a pluralistic culture. What does that mean? My neighbors are Muslim. That's what it means. And they're not just Muslim, they're a particular branch of Islam that has only about a couple of hundred adherents in the whole of Britain. Uh, Once a year, their prophet, because they have a prophet other than Muhammad, comes to visit, and there's a four or five day street party. I drive past a Sikh temple to come to St. Peter's, visiting a friend recently, and right beside his house, it's a beautiful big Mormon church. The Jehovah's Witnesses will uh, come to our doors. There's a resurgence in paganism. If you go to Waterstones and look in the religion section, you'll see lots of New Age stuff. Uh, there's a, a small, or there was, I don't know if there still is, a small hin- Hindu temple just down the street there. And you have to argue that we do live in a pluralistic culture in that sense. Many people would profess uh, not to be Christians. You've got people who've grown up in a Catholic background, for example, and maybe they, they have stopped going. They would still call themselves Catholic, but they no longer go. You've got other people, think of uh, somebody saying to me this afternoon about uh, someone they knew who was an elder who just didn't believe in God, uh, an elder in the church. So we live in a mishmash, and there's a kind of concern about religion as well, that religion is at best cultural and at worst the cause of wars. So what most people in our society will do, what they want to do is to say that basically all religions are the same. They're different expressions of humanity's search for God. And that sounds nice and it sounds good, but I want to examine this from a scriptural perspective. And I want to say why actually that's not the truth. Now the problem is that the minute you do that, people say you're not nice. Well, as I said this morning, the primary concern is not about niceness, but we we do have to look at truth. People will say you're too narrow. Tim Keller's response to that is fact isn't narrow. Opinions can be narrow. Maybe values and ethics can be narrow. But fact isn't narrow. And not many people associate fact with religion. So uh, that's the kind of background to what we're going to look at. 
But let's turn to the word of God. We're going to read Acts chapter 4. This situation, the situation we're in today, is not really anything new. The culture in Jesus' day was very pluralistic. You had the very many Greek gods, you had the Roman gods, you had different groups within Judaism, you had the Zoroastrians, you had uh, numerous other tribal gods. The situation we come into in Acts chapter 4 is when uh, Peter and John, after Pentecost, are being summoned to answer to the Jewish ruling council. So Acts 4 verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. Love that. I just love that whole idea that you're preaching and 5,000 people believe. You've gone from about, what, 50? Maybe a couple of hundred, including the women. But suddenly you've, got, you've gone from 12 men, maybe 20 men, to 5,000 men. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He, that is Jesus, is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven um, to men by which we must be saved. Now, it's a very logical thing and a very simple thing to say that by definition, All religions cannot be equally right because they make different and opposing claims. When someone says, well, let's just treat all religions as though they were equally right, as though they were all the same, then what they are doing is they're being incredibly arrogant because they're not listening to what the religions are actually saying. And I would say, actually, from a Christian perspective, they're not listening at all to what Jesus is saying it should be blatantly obvious that all religions are not the same if you're a Muslim to believe that Jesus is the son of God is something that is to be utterly and totally condemned how is that the same as saying that he is the son of God what our non-religious modernists say is kind of Well, what they really mean is religions don't really matter, so it doesn't really matter what you believe. You're just religious people who do religious things. But the Bible just doesn't let us away with that. So I want to focus on what Christ says 
And then I want to spend a brief amount of time looking at how that contrasts with the claims of some different religions. Please understand a couple of caveats. I'm not going to be saying uh, everything about every religion. And I'm trying to be fair to the different religions and reflect accurately what they say. But also what we're not saying is this. And this is incredibly important. If you... Let's take my Muslim neighbors. I believe they are wrong in what they believe. But I don't hate them because of that. And I don't think they are less human because of that. And I don't think I should be less kind to them because of that. And that is very important. Because sometimes people will take Christian teaching and they'll turn it into a kind of racism, to be honest. A a hatred of other groups. And that's absolutely what we are not to do. The other thing here is that we are looking at the claims of Christ and it is very, very important for us to understand what is not being claimed. We are not claiming that Christianity has a monopoly on truth. Calvin, in coming on this, in coming on John chapter 1, where it's talking about the light that gives light to every man, Jesus being the light that gives light to every man, <coughs> says this, for we know that men have this particular excellence which raises them above other animals, that they are endued with reason and intelligence, and that they carry the distinction between right and wrong engraven on their conscience. There is no man, therefore, whom some perception of the eternal light does not reach. We should not be surprised that there is truth in other religions. Why would we be surprised at that? Because God has given his light to all human beings and there are aspects of common grace that are reflected in different religions as people seek to reach out to God. So I have no qualms at all. I remember being in a uh, debate with a Muslim, with a Muslim society. i never forget it because a woman came up to me at the end and she had uh, a, the whole burqa, the whole works. And she said, can I talk to you? And I said, are you allowed to? And she said, oh, yes. I said, where's your husband? She said, he's up there. I said, will he be happy? And she said, yeah, he's an idiot. <laughs> I thought, okay, this is not quite the submissive Muslim I was expecting. Um, and she said, David, she said, you're a very unusual Christian. I said, why? She said, do you believe that there is one God? Yes. Do you believe he's the creator? Yes. Do you believe in heaven and hell? Yes. Do you believe that the Bible is the word of God? I said, yes. She said, you, you're almost a Muslim. Uh, to which I had to say, well, maybe you're almost a Christian. And we, we began discussing. But there are certain things that we would have in common. And that would be true with other religions as well. But that is not the same as saying that they are the same. And the, the, the key thing is the person and work of Jesus Christ. The claims of God, the claims of Christ. Now, this is, this is absolutely key. Every single religion in the world has prophets and leaders who claim to be a messenger from God, who will show us the way to God. Jesus Christ claims that he is God and that he is God come to us. That is a fundamental, an absolutely fundamental difference. John chapter 1, you could read the whole chapter. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. The word was life. The word was light. The word came to give life and light. Hebrews chapter 1 
tells us exactly the same, that the sun is the exact representation of, of God's being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So the first claim of Christ that is astounding is that he claims to be God, not a God, this is not polytheism, multi-gods, but the Trinity, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and Jesus' claim is to be the second person of the Trinity. Now, when you get people who profess to be Christians and say, well, that doesn't really matter, and that's not an issue, they're not Christians because they're not understanding who Christ is. The second claim is in John fourteen six: I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Every Jew knew you can't see God. And Jesus stood there and said, do you want to see the Father? Now on, you've seen him. I and the Father are one. He's saying, you look at me, you're seeing God. Now that's an extraordinary claim. And that is uh, what I want to look at the other religions in the light of. Go back to Acts chapter 4 and you'll see something of great significance because the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander... They brought Peter and John, and Peter and John are fishermen. Now, I don't know what the equivalent is in our culture. And if I did try and work it out, maybe somebody would be offended. But basically, you haven't got a degree. You did not go to the University of Jerusalem to get a degree in fishing. Um, You are not considered educated. You're considered a wee bit above shepherds, but you're certainly not welcome into the Sanhedrin to lecture the, those who have studied for many, many years on these greatly important subjects. But Peter and John come and they stand there. And the question they're asked is fascinating. By what power or what name did you do this? Because for them, the, the name was crucial and vital. Look at Peter's wonderful answer. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's the only reason that this could happen. Because he's just so full of courage and boldness. And his, first, his argument is, listen rulers and elders. If you're calling us to account because we did something kind to a cripple. You're asking how he was healed. Then I want you to know this. It's by the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Whom by the way you crucified. You killed him. That this man now stands healed. He then quotes the scriptures at them and quotes a prophecy about them being builders who rejected the Messiah. And then he incredibly boldly says, salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name given under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. The answer is, the name and the authority of Jesus Christ. I will, we will say a little bit more about this at the moment, but one of the things with Hindus I find quite interesting is they're quite happy to accept Jesus as a God, but you just put him on a mantelpiece, the same with all the other gods. No, this is the name, the authority. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Now these, as I say, are extraordinary claims and they are not made by us. You see, when people say, ah, well, 
You're talking about your religion and what you believe and what you've made up and what you've invented and your culture. We're saying, no, no, we're talking about what Jesus says and we profess to follow Jesus Christ. So I want to just go through some of these and maybe help you in understanding. I apologize if you are someone from one of these religions and you're thinking, well, wait a minute, that's a very superficial summary of my religion. I I accept that. I accept this is an outline and... You know, it's really, there are thousands and thousands of books written on all of this and, and we can discuss it, but I'm just wanting to give a summary for those of us who are Christians to help us understand and see this. First of all, let's talk about Islam. Actually, probably before I do that, I need to talk about Moses. If you go along to our fellowship groups, Will's studies on Hebrews have shown And Hebrews shows wonderfully that Jesus is claiming to be superior to Moses. The temptation was for the Jewish Christians to return back to Judaism. And the whole book of Hebrews is saying, don't do that because Jesus is superior. Now that also ties in with what we're saying about uh, Islam. What does Islam basically teach? Let me just summarize it this way. Allah is the one true God. Allah has sent many prophets, including Jesus and Moses, but Muhammad is the last one and the greatest one. The Quran is the supreme religious book taking priority over the law, the Psalms, and the Injil, the Gospels of Jesus. And I think something that many people won't know is that Muslims believe that there are many intermediate beings between God and us, angels, some of whom are good and some of whom are evil. And then the Muslim way of salvation is this. Each person's deeds will be weighed to determine who will go to heaven and hell at the resurrection. The only way to gain salvation, and this isn't even guaranteed, includes reciting the Shahada several times a day. There is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet praying five times a day, fasting a month each year, um, Ramadan, almsgiving, giving to the poor, and making pilgrimages to Mecca. Now, I've been reading the Quran, and uh, there are things in it you would read, and you'd say, well, yeah, I totally agree with that. You can see where it, you can see the Jewish influence upon Muhammad. But there are other things I look at, it and, and it's horrifying. When people say they're just the same, I would quite happily say, here's a Quran, here's a Bible, or here's a New Testament, if you want. Read them, and then tell me they're just the same. They're not. But I want to focus again on the person of Christ. I'm going to do this with each of them. The message. The message is very simple. Jesus claimed to be God. Muhammad never claimed to be God. Claimed only to be a mere man who was a prophet. There is a huge distinction. Jesus performed numerous miracles. Muhammad performed no miracles. And in the Quran admitted that Jesus did many. In terms of the method of salvation, Muhammad did not die and rise from the dead. Unlike the God of Islam who is distant from us and always has to be distant from us, The God of the Bible reached out to us by sending his son to earth to die for our sins. Muhammad offers no surety of salvation. There is not a single Muslim in this world who can be sure that they're going to go to heaven. Not by their theology, not by their understanding. 
The only thing that's given in the Quran is guidelines to work yourself into Allah's favor. It's a religion of works. For the Christian, that's different. The Christian doesn't store up good works enough to get us into heaven, hoping that God will accept us at the end. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also died once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. In speaking to Muslims who've become Christians, the one thing I've noticed that, that is the most incredible thing for them is forgiveness. You can't know that as, as a Muslim because you've got to keep your whole life trying to submit to God. Let me tell you, I this morning, as I was sitting reading and praying, in my, in my own mind and heart was just this enormous thankfulness that, Lord, it doesn't matter what I've done or who I am, I am forgiven because of Christ. And no Muslim can, can say that. And that's one of the reasons, I think, rather than have a hatred or fear of Islam, we as Christians should have a real uh, love for our, our Muslim neighbors and to introduce them to the God or the person of Jesus Christ who can bring them that assurance of salvation. Another major difference is actually between the two men, the person and character of Jesus Christ and the person and character of Mohammed. Mohammed spent the last 10 years of his life at war. He was a polygamist. In the Quran, it's written, you should only have four wives. He had more than that, probably 10. One of them, a 12-year-old. He violated his own law by plundering caravans coming out of Mecca, some of whom were on pilgrimage. He engaged in retaliation and revenge, contrary to his own teaching. You can never look at anything that Jesus taught or said, or anything that Jesus did that was contrary to what Jesus taught. It's very easy to do that with Mohammed. Now, I admit, it wouldn't be the wisest thing in the world to go up to your Muslim neighbor and say, look, Mohammed was a bit of a bad guy here. Uh, that's not how it works. Um, you know that although they say they do not worship Mohammed, it comes very close, very close. But nonetheless, we need to be aware of that. Do the same thing with Hinduism. A lot of people find it difficult to understand Hinduism. In Hinduism, a guru is a teacher. The Hindu scriptures, unlike the Bible, cannot be understood by reading. They have to be learned from a guru. I had a friend at university whose father was a Hindu professor and who said that as a Hindu professor, he, had never, he, he hadn't read all the Hindu scriptures, that he couldn't. There were so many. What's being taught in Hinduism is that human, needs, human beings need liberation from the endless cycle of reincarnation, what they call samsara. And that's brought on by karma, and karma is the effects of all the words, deeds, and actions in the present and all former lives. Liberation, moksha, is obtained when the individual expands their being and consciousness to an infinite level. How do you fancy that? You're going to be infinite. Your mind and consciousness is going to be infinite. I am really, really struggling just to cope with being in my own wee head and Dundee and, and you know, get my head around that. The idea of an infinite mind and consciousness is, it, it just sounds like purgatory to me. But anyway, that's what it teaches. And then the Atman, the self, is the same as Brahman, the one absolute being from which all multiplicity comes. 
Okay, in terms of message, honestly, the message of Jesus is so much simpler and so much more wonderful. In terms of miracles, each Hindu has to realize their own personal godhood. You only get that by achieving uh, something called Yanaya Yoga, salvation by knowledge of the ancient writings and inward meditation. You have salvation by devotion to one of the many deities. You have karma yoga, salvation by works such as ceremonies, sacrifices, fasting, and pilgrimage. And ultimately, you need raja yoga, a meditation technique involving control over the body, breathing, and thoughts. Incidentally, let me just say here, is yoga wrong? If you mean by breathing technique and thinking nice thoughts and imagining pink, no. If you're going to take in the Hindu theology... As part of that, yes, it is. Because it's teaching something that takes us away from God. The Hindu method of salvation is largely superstition, legendary stories about the gods, occult practices, and demon worship. Jesus gives us a different way of meditation. The Hindu way of meditation is to empty your mind. The Christian way of meditation is to fill your mind with the truth of Scripture. Psalm 1, for example. Some of you will have seen Shrek and uh, the bit where Donkey and Shrek are going along and he's talking about his inward feelings and peeling off like an onion and there's more to come and there's more to come. And I think at one point he says, onion boy. Um, That's actually a very good reflection on Hindu meditation. And I'll tell you why. Inward meditation is like peeling an onion. You keep tearing off layer after layer until when you reach the middle, there's nothing there. That's the point of the meditation. But meditation on God's word begins with content and opens up the meaning until it yields contentment of the soul. Jesus teaches a much better way of salvation. The Hindus lost in the karmic cycle of reincarnation. And you have to work, it's like a maze and you've got to work your way out. Jesus says, you're saved by faith and I am the way. In other words, Jesus says, basically, take my hand, come with me. The Hindu has to work it out for themselves. There's another difference that it's unpleasant to say, but it's true. Orthodox Hinduism insists that suffering people should be left to suffer because it's their destiny as determined by karma. It's your karma. Too bad. You're dying. That's your karma. You're poor. That's your karma. Jesus said, you love your neighbor as yourself. You don't say they deserve it or that's their karma. There is a problem also in terms of between the person of Jesus Christ and the persons of many of the gurus. Many, if not most gurus, certainly in the West, have used their exalted position in the eyes of their followers to exploit their followers financially and sexually. I used to be a probably Salam, a great fan of the Beatles. And the Beatles went through this whole stage of following the Maharashi Yoga. And it was um, George who really, really pushed it. My sweet Lord, instant karma is going to get you. And all these different kinds of songs. But John Lennon, who was much more cynical, uh, immediately realized what was happening, that the Maharashi was more interested in Rolls Royces and in the female companions of the Beatles than he was in any kind of spirituality. And they quickly gave up on it. (coughs) Again, please understand that what's being said here is you don't look and say, well, all Hindus are bad. 
because the teaching's bad. That's not how it works. What we're saying is Hinduism is no way to save people. It's no way to help people. Buddhism, everyone's into, well, not everyone, but lots of people are into Buddhism. It's cool to be Buddhist. It's kind of the ultimate for Western materialists because you don't have to believe in God and you can say you're spiritual. You say people are not that interested. Yes, they are. Last year, the Dalai Lama came to Dundee. Uh, I happened to be part of the team that was organizing the visit because it was the university chaplaincy and I'm a chaplain. So I got a free ticket in a, quite a very interesting place. <laughs> um, unbelievable. 2,000 tickets sold out in 20 minutes. There were queues of people outside just waiting to see him. I, honestly, I wasn't even remotely impressed at all for lots and lots of different reasons. But the Dalai Lama compared with Christ, and yet there were people, and teachers, what amazed me was how many teachers took their, took their pupils. And remember, we're not supposed to be biased and so on, but they tried to get people, their pupils to go and listen to this wonderful wisdom. Well, basic message. Buddha is a title meaning the enlightened one. And Gautama the Buddha... Uh, it began as a kind of reformation movement within Hinduism. And it introduced a kind of rituals and an occultism and developed an essentially atheistic religion because that's what it, essentially Buddhism is. There are four noble truths. Life is suffering. This is the cheery message of Buddhism. Life is suffering. Suffering is caused by desires for pleasure and prosperity. Suffering can be overcome by eliminating desires. Desire can be eliminated by the eightfold path which is right knowledge, right intentions, right speech, right conduct, right occupation, right effort, right mindfulness, and right meditation. By the way, right now, the big thing in companies and in government organizations is mindfulness. I got sent something this week about Christian mindfulness. No, no, no. Mindfulness is a Buddhist concept. And it's part of emptying yourself. Again, in Buddhism, there are no miracles. In terms of uh, the method of salvation, it is really uh, quite horrendous. Buddhists seek nirvana, the elimination of all suffering, the elimination of all desires, and the, the elimination of the illusion of self-existence. If you really are going to be a real Buddhist, what you're hoping for is you'll reach a point where you will feel nothing. No joy, no pain, that's true, no pleasure, nothing. Absolutely nothing. Nothingness is the aim. What does Jesus? Jesus comes to give us life. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The promise of heaven is not that you will die and experience nothingness or be reincarnated. The promise of heaven is that you will experience an eternal life, which the best of this life is only a shadow Buddhism sees life only as suffering and selfhood, something that needs to be eradicated. Jesus taught that life is a gift from God to be enjoyed. And Jesus promised hope in the life to come. I think Jesus promises to each individual a promise of eternal life. And Buddhism can never, ever do that. 
I, I sometimes wonder why people are into Buddhism and I suspect it's maybe because they don't really know what it is and they like the idea of the eight paths and so on. But compared with Christ, it, it's really just terrible. Taoism. Now, I put this one here because phenomenally popular in China and phenomenally popular increasingly in the West. Modern Taoism is a religion of witchcraft, superstition, and polytheism. It was originally just a philosophy, and that is how it will be presented in the West today. But it's, it's quite difficult. You'll understand some of the concepts from television and so on. The pr- basic principle is the Tao. And there's no simple way to explain that. The world is full of opposites, good and evil, male and female, light and dark, yes and no. And you'll have heard the expression yin and yang. That's a conflict. It's the conflict that's always going on in life. But ultimately, yin and yang are completely intertwined and perfectly balanced, and that balance is what you call the Tao. So what you've got to do is you realize that all opposites are true. And they all come together in one truth. And so if you want to get into this, then you should live a life of complete passiveness and reflection. So you should go home tonight and you should sort of cross your legs and go, hmm, what is the sound of one hand clapping? And spend a long time reflecting on what is the sound of one hand clapping. Or the other classic one, of course, is if a tree falls in the forest when no one is there to hear it, does it make a sound? It's a form of philosophy that says you should avoid all forms of violence and you should be at peace with nature. It's very similar in some ways to Buddhism. Of course, it has no miracles. I contrast its method of salvation, which says reason does not apply to reality. Don't think, don't reason. Contrast that message with this complete passivity. Just let things happen to you. With what Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Isaiah 1.18, come now and let us reason together. First Peter 3.15, Peter says, give a reason for the hope that you have. Taoism says, that's the way it is. Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. Christianity, Jesus Christ, offers the possibility of change that we might know the joys of life. Then the other one is, I just wanted to mention, is modernism, the philosophy that most of our society, even though it might say postmodernism comes under. And and this comes from the idea of enlightenment from the 17th and 18th centuries. And its message is very simple. Man is the meaning. We are the meaning. We make our own meaning. Meaning is whatever you want it to be. You just do it yourself. We are the center of things. Miracles? There are no miracles. Of course there are no miracles. If we can't do them, the greatest miracles that you will see are iPads or cars or something that we do. In terms of the method of salvation... We don't need saved. And if we are going to be saved from something or other, it's ourselves that are going to do it. We have to, uh, we're going to save the world. Climate change, we're going to get the temperature sorted out. Wars, we're going to deal with that. Sickness, we can cure that. 
It's an incredibly optimistic view of humankind, which doesn't really, isn't really borne out by the facts. Some people think that modernists are much more humane and kind and therefore are being called humanists. But contrast that with what Jesus offers. The 20th century was a century of modernism. It's a century in which 100 million people were killed in wars. Look at mankind today and look at what is going on and what is happening. It is incredibly depressing. And I look at all the different religions and I look at all the different, well not all, but some of the different philosophies. And I contrast that with Jesus Christ. And that's where I want to take this in terms of what Jesus actually did. There is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. For this purpose, I was appointed a herald and apostle. (coughs) I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. Let me just list five things that Jesus did that no other religion can bring, no other religious person. Jesus took our nature. He was God and he took our nature. The incarnation is such an extraordinary thing. Jesus became as we are in terms of our body, in terms of our emotions, in terms of our psychology, in terms of our minds. God is not, like in Islam, so distant that we can never know him. He's not detached and impersonal as in virtually all the other religions. He came and he showed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus lived our life. The life that he lived, for most of it, wasn't substantially different from ours, except it was without sin, which is obviously huge. But he lived in relative poverty and in relative obscurity and experienced many of the sorrows and losses that we also experience. He took our sin. And again, I don't know a single religion which will teach that. Every religion says, take your own sin, deal with your own sin. This is how you get it dealt with. Submit to Allah. Be reincarnated and reincarnated. Live a better life the next time and a better life the next time until finally you achieve nothingness. And Jesus shows us our sin and then says, I take it. I took it. I took your sin. There really is nothing to compare with that. He died our death. The death that we deserve to die, he died for us. And, of course, he rose from the dead. Now, when Paul says... I was appointed a teacher of the true faith. Immediately in our modernist mindset, we say, what an arrogant statement. What do you mean the true faith? How can you say you teach the true faith? Well, I'm going to say it. In this church, we teach the true faith. And I hope that in churches throughout the land, whatever their denomination, people will teach the true faith. You do have churches which don't teach the true faith because they don't teach Jesus and they don't teach his word. Because it's very narrow, and I'm saying, no, it's not narrow, and here's why. Here's why this is inclusive. 
Because Jesus doesn't say, come to me, all you that are Scottish and white, or all you that are from a Jewish background, or all you that are male, or come to me, all you that have reached a certain level of understanding and intelligence, or come to me, all you that have performed these religious duties, or come to me, all you who have been brought up in this church. What Jesus says is simple. Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. That's everybody. That's everybody. You're saying, how do I tell the gospel to somebody? How do I tell the gospel to my non-Christian friend? You say, you know, you know what Jesus says? He says, come to me if you labor under heavy laden. They go, I, I have no idea what it means to come to Jesus. I have no idea who he's. Well, let me tell you about him. Let me tell you about this savior who will accept you, who you, not only do you not have to earn your way to him, but you can't. You can't earn your way to him. The gospel, you see, was to be taken to all nations. It's interesting that people will sometimes go about the Old Testament. Well, isn't it terrible that God chose this tiny group of Jews and it was just for them and this is their tribal God. These are people who've not read the Old Testament. What was Abraham told? I'm choosing you so that through you all nations will be blessed. That's why, by the way, we should love the Jews because it was through the Jews and it's still through the Jews actually that God's blessing comes upon the world. Now, why did God choose the Jews? Not because they were better than anybody else, but because he chose to do so. That's how he chose to work. The gospel is taken to all nations. The early Christians, these these 5,000 that were converted here, they weren't allowed to stay in Jerusalem in their mega church and look at the rest of the world and say it's terrible. They were scattered by persecution. They went to Samaria They went to Greece, they went to Libya, they went to Italy, they went to Spain. They ultimately came even to Scotland within a a hundred years of Jesus dying. The gospel was being proclaimed on these shores. That's extraordinary and it is wonderful. Jesus is not a Western God. He is the God of the whole world. And ultimately, a multitude which no one can count from every tribe, people, and language will be in heaven praising him because he died for them and saved them. So when someone says to me, you're not nice because you're saying that Jesus is the only way, I'm saying, if he is the only way, it would not be nice to say nothing. I spoke at a Christian Union meeting, not in Dundee, thankfully, and it was an outreach event, and at the end of it, a woman stood up, and she said, I am a Christian, and I find what you said very offensive. She said, are you saying that I have to seek for my Muslim neighbors to be converted? She said, I I want to love my Muslim neighbors by giving them soup and, and so on. And I looked at her, and I said, are you serious? She said, absolutely. I said, do you have any Muslim neighbors? She said, no. I said, well, I do. And I'm not going to go and give them soup because I'd probably, it would be non-whatever food, you know, the kind of food, kosher I was going to say, but that's Jewish, whatever the Islamic equivalent is. Non-halal. Probably be non-halal food that I would end up giving them anyway. I'm not going to do that. The best thing I could ever give to my Muslim neighbors, and I don't know how, but it's a burden is I do want them to know about Jesus because I believe what the gospel says. 
It's not tribalism. It's not my God is better than yours. It's recognizing what the scripture says, that all the gods of the nations are dumb idols. But there is one name given under heaven. The whole earth. One name by which people can be saved. Let me finish just by saying something about that name. Leonard Cohen's latest album, um, Popular Problems, he's got a wonderful song called Born in Chains. Now, Cohen is Jewish, and Jewish Jews understand the importance of the name. The name. They can't say Jehovah or Yahweh. The name must not be mentioned. And in this song, Born in Chains, Cohen talks about, I was born in chains, taken out of Egypt. He's referring, obviously, um, to the imagery of the Old Testament. But it's a wonderful song describing what it's like to be in sin. And throughout the song, he keeps referring to the name. He has a chorus that goes like this. Word of words and measure of all measures. Blessed is the name. The name be blessed. Written on my heart in burning letters. That's all I know. I cannot read the rest. That's so close, so close to the gospel. Blessed is the name. I need to know the name. If I know the name, I may not be able to read the rest, but that's enough, written on my heart in burning letters. Or to put it in the words of an old gospel song, there is a name I love to hear. I love to sing its worth. It sounds like music in my ear, the sweetest name on earth. Oh, how I love the Savior's name. See, when we do evangelism, we are telling people about Jesus and as people hear the name, I'm not talking about in a superstitious you know, mantra repeating all the time, but when they grasp who Jesus is and grasp the beauty of his name and the glory of who he is, that name becomes sweet to them. That name becomes real to them. He becomes real to them. And they follow him. And they call themselves by his name. I am a Christian, a follower of Christ, the Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. So I hope you can see that it's not intolerant and it's not negative to believe that there is one God who sent his son to die for the whole world. That whoever believes in him, whatever their background, whatever their sins, should be saved. That's not intolerant. I think it's much more defeatist to say, just invent your own religion or follow whatever religion you like in order to try and make your way to heaven. You're not going to make your way to heaven. You need heaven to come to you. And it has. He has in the person of Jesus Christ. So if you're a Christian, be encouraged by that. If you're a Christian, don't be ashamed to share the name and to speak of Jesus Christ. And don't be bullied by people who will emotionally blackmail you by telling you, oh, you're horrible and narrow and, and, and exclusive. When they themselves are actually being very exclusive in terms of their own philosophy. And if you're not a Christian, just heed the words of Peter. It is by the name of Jesus Christ. It's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Let's pray. (coughs) 
Lord, we acknowledge that we are religious people, that we seek to find you. But we are blind and we stumble around in the dark, often inventing our own gods. How could we see? How could we know? Unless you came to us. And we bless you that you have come to us. That Jesus Christ is the light of the world who gives light to every man. We ask that your light would be shared aboard in our hearts and in the hearts and minds of all the people that we meet. And Lord, there's a great darkness over this land. Our God, we pray that you would send forth your light and your truth. And for those of us who feel a darkness in our own hearts and a darkness in our own circumstances, we cry out in the words of the psalmist, oh, send your light forth and your truth. Let them be guides to me and bring me to your holy hill, even where your dwelling be. Lord, we need that. We can't enlighten ourselves and we can't trust in religions and gurus and we can't trust in, in human leaders but we can trust you and so we commit ourselves to you and ask that we would be blessed by your name and that your name would be blessed for we ask it in the precious name of Jesus Amen Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.